Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah. Dear brothers and sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome to this Ilmfeed podcast episode with me, your host, Fatima Barakatullah. Today, I have a really special guest with me. Um, I'm going to invite him into the studio and then I will uh, introduce him. It's brother, brother Omar Suleiman. Assalamu alaikum, brother. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, sis. Brother Umar has been actively involved in Islamic finance for the last decade, working with some of the most notable UK scholars, ulama, on Sharia structuring and process reviews. Uh, Brother Omar currently is general manager for Wahid UK. He sits on the board of the UK IFC, which is an Islamic uh, finance uh i think a regulating body is it um no it's a bit more we, we work with the regulators we work with governments we kind of work to build capacity with the islamic finance industry as a whole um uh, and we've been working more increasingly closely with um the un and, and various governments around uh, ethical finance and sustainable development goals but our inception okay. was to help develop the industry mashallah and I'm going to carry on with your intro so people are aware. He's an advisor for the finance arm of the Islamic Council of Europe and is co-founder of the National Waqf Fund. Uh, Brother Omar was recognized for his work in 2016 as One to Watch in the City by Brummel magazine for not only his work in Islamic finance, but also his role as a member of the Steer Co for the Cube Network, an umbrella organization for professional corporate Muslim networks. Brother Omar is also a regular khatib in the city and in his local masjid. And mashallah, he's a good friend of my husband's as well. So Jazakallah khairan, Brother Omar. Barakallah fi, barakallah fi, sis. Jazakallah khairan. You know, you've got these introductions sometimes and it's uh, kind of go through the list, but I guess it's important so the audience knows. But it's always a little bit difficult to hear you know when people are like kind of saying what you're involved in but yeah, yeah. But alhamdulillah so I know it's no important. but mashallah I think it's important because I think people might have heard that you know you you're um your general manager of Wahid but they might not really know much about your background and mashallah you've got both that kind of Islamic studies <clears throat> Sharia background as well as uh, a very strong background in economics and and finance so I think it's really important that people know that uh, so that members of our community know, you know, who they're yeah. dealing with and, who, no, and, just and the authority that people have. But Brother Umar, today I just saw this amazing, something that you put out, I think, with Learning Roots. And um, it's this, uh, it's like an ebook, I think, right? That's um, correct. And it's called The Prophet Yusuf's Amazing Investment. A Child's First Guide to Halal Investing. And it's such an amazing little book. Um, getting children from a young age to start thinking about investing. And, and you know, it was really funny because when I read it, I thought, of course, the Prophet Yusuf, right? Like one of the great things uh, from his story is that whole, the whole story of the, um, the, the seven years, right? The seven exactly. years when... Yeah. when the people of Egypt would have a lot of crops 
and then then they should save it with the, in the dream, right? They should save it, and then for the seven years of famine. I never thought of um, using that as a way to teach children about investing. Uh, but yeah. tell us a little bit about that because it seems like something that seems to be really important to you is uh, financial literacy in the Muslim community. Yeah, definitely. If you look at um, generally the rates of financial literacy and their correlation with, uh, I guess, um, access to getting out of poverty or rising up the social ladder, so to speak. Uh, and you can see that definitely there's a direct correlation in terms of how people get into debt, how people get themselves into worse problems. Um, you know, Alhamdulillah, from Alhamdulillah, I was quite fortunate, I guess, from my background. That, I mean, I came from a very working class background. I was uh, brought up by a single parent, actually, for the earlier part of my life. Um, and, and you kind of see, you know, when you're growing up like that, how you make ends meet, how, how difficult things were. Then, Alhamdulillah, by Allah's grace, I managed to obviously go to university. I went to uh, a private school, got a scholarship at that time. Uh, and you kind of see how the other half uh, live, or the other 10%, maybe, and then working in the city, etc. And, and you get to realize that actually um, a lot of it comes down to how people understand money and how they use it. Uh, and so for me, it was a really big thing about educating our community uh, from understanding money conventionally, but also when you layer in the Islamic importance of it, because truly when you understand the prohibition of riba and the rules that we have, you know, it has a detrimental effect on society. And sometimes we don't connect the two. You know, like riba, we will just see, okay, maybe we're not supposed to get involved in it. But we don't see the pervasive impact it has on society as a whole. And so for me, it's really important. But look, first stage is actually educating people about how they understand wealth. And then alhamdulillah, mm -hmm. it just opens up everything. I mean, Muslims generally, like mashallah, we're known to be generous. But I think our focus is often on the charitable element, which can be 2.5% at a minimum. And unfortunately, our maximum seems to be about 5% when I speak to charities that they say at least 50% or, you know, sometimes more of their income is from zakat, which means that the rest of it is probably just sadaqah. So that means maybe 2.5% to maybe 5% of our money is through, uh, we deal with is a related charity. But the vast majority, the 95% about of the Muslim economy, we don't really talk about much, you know, actually. Um, and so we've had this real focus on the charity element. And I think that we kind of, whilst we understand charity in its role, we need to think about the other mechanisms and our relationship with money, actually, which helps society. And that comes through education. And that's why the financial literacy and the story um, uh, of, of, of Yusuf salam, is there. And it's the same thing. For me, it triggered it for seven years and the importance of saving. Can we hear it? I mean, my parents, uh, my dad always said, look, and if you want to buy something, save for it now. You know, maybe we'll mm -hmm. touch upon it later. This uh, buy now, pay later. No, it was uh, save now and buy later was uh, what I was always taught mm -hmm. as a kid. Um, and so that's, yeah, the story comes across. Hamdan has a lot of education and it's done in a fun way. Hats off complete to Zaheer and the, term, uh, the, the team at Learning Roots, mashallah, for taking the concept and really delivering it well. Mm. Yeah, I love the sort of <clears throat> delayed gratification section because <laughs> that, that's a general thing that we would want our kids to learn, right? Like, yeah. and, and it's not just about money, actually. It's about exercise, healthy eating, you know, Completely. any area where you've got to do something now to benefit in the future, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
So I think there's always... As well. Sorry? Say that I think again. there's lessons there for adults as well, not just yes, for kids. Yes, definitely, definitely. <laughs> uh, so, uh, by the way, how could so, how could people get a copy of this? Because I'm sure the people are listening to this and thinking, where, where can we get it's a copy? It's available for everyone. There's just a link. You put your name and address in, and then you'll be sent the uh, to download uh, a PDF version of it. Um, I can give it to you, and you can share it out with the with this podcast, inshallah. It helps. Okay, so we'll put the link in the in the description, inshallah. Um, <clears throat> Brother Umar, so were you were you always like as a child? When did you first become conscious of money and like interested in the topic of economics and money? Because I must admit, like I grew up in a council flat in Hackney. Okay. Yeah. And maybe because we were a traditional family and um, I, I must admit, I never thought about money. Like I yeah. literally, I got a job when I was like 16, my first job, because I was interested in, uh, because I wanted to buy things, right? There were things yeah. that I wanted to buy. So I thought, well, my parents don't really give me enough pocket money. So best ways for me to get a basic job. So I've always been savvy in that way. But I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, like long term and really, I think uh, maybe I've had the luxury of having a father and then a husband who's yeah, always provided um, for me. So in that sense, um, I would say it's only really recently that I've even started thinking properly about things like my own personal finances. And I think a lot of people can probably uh identify with that especially women like okay we get given a dowry we get given you know like a gold usually if you're asian right um and you kind of forget about it sometimes you know um i don't know when what about you like how did you first get interested in the topic of money because you don't seem like you came from a background where well i don't know what kind of background did you come from? <laughs> no, 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 you're right. Um, that, that question could have gone off. Uh, <laughs> don't look like you come from money. Um, no, so you're right, I didn't come. Um, uh, like I said earlier, my uh, I was brought up by my father till I was around eight. Um, mm. So from a working class background. Um, yeah, so we didn't have money. My, my, my father used to work very hard. I used to see this element in him. He's very, very hard. But even to this day, probably one of um, the most hardest working people I know, even at this age, he's still, mashallah, working really hard. Um, but I saw when I was growing up, um, it, you don't really think about money when you're a kid. As a, as a child, you don't really think, you know, um, you know, where money comes from or anything like that. You kind of think, what do you want? And then you ask for it. Um, mm. And as you have that kind of relationship, I guess I first kind of really became aware of money or not having it in 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 that sense i guess towards the late end of my primary school uh you know when perhaps you, you don't wear the brands everyone else wears mm -hmm. you know um so yeah and then i guess when i went to secondary school which was a private school there's people with a lot of wealth okay yeah kind of there that's probably, with yeah that's probably when you became much more aware of it yeah but it, I, mm -hmm. I wasn't aware of it in the sense that oh i, I need it I just became aware of, okay, people who have money and where you don't. And for me, it was, alhamdulillah, thum, alhamdulillah I guess um, I didn't, I, may Allah protect us from this kind of coveting money for the sake of money. Yeah, uh, okay, yeah. There's a few things that happened throughout my life, I guess. My father's uh, early connection with the masjid, um, 
that really kind of helped. I saw that despite looking after two children on his own, having um, jobs, etc., he was still involved in the masjid, inshallah, alhamdulillah, sorry. Um, and he was involved from a point of if there was any disputes or the masjid wasn't running properly, you know, he didn't take a back seat. He was, a, he was very proactive in terms of getting involved in the masjid to, to, to set right what, what was perceived as a wrong. And I saw that when I was a young child, kind of seeing why is my dad getting involved uh, because he saw something wrong and he wanted to change it. Mm. Then when I went to secondary school, alhamdulillah, I was very fortunate uh, that the secondary school I went to, there was a number of older Muslims that went there, mashallah, who went on to become very active in our communities uh, that left a lasting impression on me. You know, uh, I went to school, the same school as uh, Barber. Um, oh, yes. So, yeah, Barbara. So, yeah, Barbara. And it, was, it wasn't just Barbara, alhamdulillah. There was a number of other Muslims as well. Uh, Imam Mustafiz, uh, he was the Imam of Dublin. He went on to become, uh, he was at the school as well. Um, there's a number of people that, and we, we had this, uh, you know, uh, kind of tradition of uh, we do Jummah in our main hall, our assembly hall. And I kind of saw that, you know, as Muslims, young Muslims themselves getting involved and having Salah every day and being organized. Um, and then I became connected, I guess, through that to not just living uh, an ordinary life, but having it connected to something bigger. And that came from the older people, alhamdulillah, you know, like some of the names that I mentioned. Um, so, yeah, going through school, kind of seeing that, but being disconnected to the wealth. Because at that time also, I guess, as I was coming towards, I guess, just before GCSEs, the, the whole Bosnia conflict happened. You know, and so then is mm. that connection to, well, there's an injustice being committed. You know, and then kind of the earlier things I saw with my dad standing up for justice, etc. And I thought, okay, look, you know, the, the, the state of the Muslims, we need to do something about this. Uh, and kind of constantly having that. So I thought, look, what is it that we need to do to kind of help the Muslims worldwide or globally or the Ummah? You know, and for me, it was the angle of finance, just because I, I just thought that whoever owns the, owns the money controls the situation. Um, so I thought, let me start looking into how how Muslims can become self uh, self independent and so on and so forth. And that was the early kind of uh, yeah. early journey to, to understanding finance. And then, alhamdulillah, I was just reinforced by Allah's grace through um, just random conversations. This, you know, like uh, you meet someone yeah. and they say something, uh, and then it's kind of reinforced that. And then I chose my degree topics. Uh, sorry, my university subjects based on trying to understand finance more. I did economics and management in university to kind of really get a deeper understanding. Someone who was really pivotal in my understanding, though, um, was Tariq al-Diwani. Mm -hmm. Tariq al-Diwani, yeah. yeah. Uh, Can you tell, are... our, tell yeah. our listeners a little bit about Tariq? him, who, those who aren't Yeah, familiar. definitely. Tariq al-Diwani, Allah bless him. Uh, he, he's um, kind of taken a step back from, uh, I guess, uh, Islamic finance space um, but he wrote a book called The Problem with Interest yes. and he really broke down how uh, how banks work and how fractional reserve banking works and um, he wasn't shy, he really broke it down alhamdulillah and he left a really successful career in the city you know like he actually had a really successful career in the city, he wasn't someone who's speaking about it from the outside, he took that step to move away from it and I know that he's been tested that through a life, there are difficult situations. As often it happens for many people who who make these uh, moves in the journey to Allah. Uh, but, you know, I, I listened to maybe 20 odd years, maybe more than actually, about 25 years ago, uh, at Lewisham Masjid. He came and gave a talk about banking and fractional reserve banking. And I really left 
an impression upon me. And then uh, reading some articles from himself and the Chechetham about interest um, and kind of just kind of thought, well, I, I need to get involved in this space. Um, and that, that was mm. the beginning. And then I sought out getting experience and working within Islamic finance. Mashallah. You know, I, I had a discussion with my dad. My my father is involved in Islamic finance and has been for a number of years. And um, but before that, before he was involved in Islamic finance, some you know, he used to teach us very much about how people who are from a scholarly background, uh, because he was real real Zahid himself, you know, he's like he's the sort of person who believes that Allah will always provide for him, you know, and of course that's true. But I mean, like an extra level of that in the sense that he didn't really encourage us to, um, especially if we were studying Deen, etc., to to really pursue money in that sense. Right. Um, but I remember I was having a debate with him when, when I was younger because I'd, I discovered that Imam Abu Hanifa was, of course, he's one of like the greatest scholars, right, from yeah. our history. And he, he was a businessman. Yeah. And so I was like saying to dad, dad, you can do both. You know, like a person can do both if they if they want. And it doesn't one doesn't necessarily contradict or undermine the other, because I found that Imam Bu Hanifa, because he was wealthy, mashallah, I think he used to have like uh, he used to sell cloth or he was in the kind of uh, textile yes. industry. Yeah. One of the things that he was able to do was when students came to him and really intelligent students who basically would not be able to spend all their time studying with him unless they were financially supported, he would basically give them scholarships and and fund them and say, look, I want you to be free for study. Yeah. And he would literally be able to fund some of the greatest uh, ulama, right, of yeah. the future. And so my thing was to my dad, uh, isn't that way more powerful? Like, if you're a person of taqwa, yep, and you've got money, you could use that <clears throat> to do amazing work. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I mean, Imam Abu Hanifa, there's so many examples that he used to sell yeah. cloth. And when people used to come to him, um, and he would say, "Don't buy from me. Buy from the person next to me, or, or, or a couple of places down," because he hasn't had any business today. Can you imagine in today's world of someone doing that? Yeah. You know, alhamdulillah, that he, he knew he was satisfied, but he still had that concern for, for mm. those around him. Uh, he's amazing, his life like that. And you're absolutely right, even, even amongst the Sahaba from the Ten Promised Paradise, how many of them were millionaires by today's standards, subhanAllah. So it's right, it's not uh, uh, seeking wealth for the sake of wealth itself, but what it enables you to do, that is definitely something that I think um, should, should be encouraged. And I'm not... I guess when I speak is, I don't think we should say that Muslims should be poor or anything like that. This isn't yeah. the call. Uh, but understanding Islamic finance and how money um, uh, has its role within Islam is to understand that the money doesn't own you, you own the money. It's most simple. You own wealth in your hands, not in your hearts. Uh, and what you can do with that wealth, you know? I guess uh, that's what people struggle with, isn't it? Like... Um... Either you feel that, you know, you might get attached to money or you see your children, your own children, especially like now we're not the migrant generation, right? Our parents were the migrant generation. This new generation, they haven't, most of them haven't really had the kind of 
poverty, if you like, right? Yeah, that, the that our generation did. Yeah. And so I guess sometimes we worry that are we getting them too into money? You know, how do you think people can strike the balance? Yeah, you know, this is honestly, this is just before I say that, actually, I just want to say, you know, I think you kind of just introduced your father, but your father, mashallah, is one of the pioneers of Islamic finance in the UK. People won't know this. But Mufti Barakatullah, your father is like, he's one of the, the top three scholars in the UK when it comes to Islamic finance. Um, I've had the pleasure of, of working with him and, you know, having a lot of discussions on Islamic finance with him. And, uh, you know, may Allah preserve him because it was on on, on the shoulders of, of the people like uh, your father and others that we were able to discuss having things like Islamic finance and how Islamic is it and all the different products that we're doing today. And, and people may not know. You know, so I think it's important yeah, that we make dua for all of them, all of the, all of the scholars and our predecessors, those who are here and those who have passed away, who worked in this space for us. Um, so, yeah, this point, I mean, I, I was discussing with a friend saying that, look, you know, uh, I, I, I obviously had a bit of a tough upbringing. I was working when I was 13 to fund myself and all of these types of things. And I know mm -hmm. that it, um, it had an impact in terms of drive on myself, etc., but I wouldn't want my kids to do that. And I'm worried that if they don't do that, it'll make them soft. Yes. Yeah. So naturally, we want to give our children as much as we can. Um, but it's difficult. It really is difficult. Like, you know, do, do you want them to work? I mean, the high street's dead now anyway. So I don't know if those opportunities are available there in the same way. But um, I do think that something needs to be something needs to be done uh, in terms of how children um access and the, the delayed gratification is the big one to be honest because we live in yes. a time where everything mm -hmm. is instant everything is instant you know if you want something you don't even need to go out anymore it'll come to your door you want some food it'll come to your door you order yeah. things online it's crazy it's crazy mm. yeah so so do you think it's going to be that they're going to have to learn that the hard way themselves because sometimes i i think that's what it is because there's so much you can say to somebody you can lecture them you can but sometimes yeah. it's actually life experience that is the best teacher right yeah definitely i i think life experience is and whilst we don't ask for hardship i think look ultimately a believer is only ever in two states sabr or shukr and um if we're not in a state where we need to have sabr then i think we really need to teach our children shukr uh, and this is uh, something i used to do with my kids is that whenever i used to drop them in the morning I'd ask them every morning, as to my, my, my older daughters, uh, think of one thing that you want to thank Allah for for today. And so every morning they they kind of say, oh, we thank Allah for our family, or we thank Allah for our phones, or our books, or our room, or mm -hmm. and then they, you start thinking, they start thinking a little bit more about it for our our extended family, for our our rooms, for our bunk bed, and it's just getting them into the habit of being grateful. Because yeah, because if, if you don't, then they won't even notice that those things are special, right? Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it is difficult, actually, because generally, uh, those of us who are fortunate not to be in a state of, of, of sabr, you know, even though we may think we are, generally, alhamdulillah, I think we're okay. Um, so we really have to instill in our children shukr, to be grateful and know that actually, you know, Allah can take it away any moment. Um, and if Allah is testing us, then... You know, may Allah will make it easy for those people who are going through that. I think that naturally they're going to learn uh, how, how to how to have patience. So, Brother Omar, Islamic finance. Um, 
I only really got, I, I knew that my dad was involved in Islamic finance for a long time, <laughs> but I got into involved or interested in Islamic finance at university when I started my yeah. MA. We did, you know, before that in Alamiya, we did Kitabul uh, Buyur, you know, from the yeah. various Madahib, etc. But obviously that's kind of like a historical look, you know, it's more yeah. like a historical look. And then coming to uni, um, SOAS, <clears throat> we had a, a, a module, uh, the law of Islamic finance with a non-Muslim Jewish American teacher, right? <laughs> and so, and, and, and this guy is really passionate about Islamic finance. And so I, I was really intrigued just from a, like a Dawa perspective, even like how come there's so many non-Muslims are like, interested in Islamic finance. And what I found is that, <clears throat> mashallah, not only was it so eye-opening because Islamic of all the areas of Islamic law, I would say Islamic finance is probably having the greatest sort of global <clears throat> impact, if you like, or at least attention, right? Um, that's one thing. Another thing is that a lot of people are seeing it as ethical finance, so yeah. not necessarily Islamic, just ethical, just more ethical. You know, the fact that, uh, you know, it isn't a debt-based, or it's not supposed to be a debt-based. Um, yeah, yeah. See, I, I use my words carefully. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not supposed to be a debt-based uh, system. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's about shared risk. It's about, you know, sh uh, the wealth really funding. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's also... Um, about not investing in things like, you know, alcohol, pornography, all sorts yeah. of social ills, right? That's correct. That, sh that should be attractive to, you know, anyone who's kind of conscious of um, uh, kind of social matters, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I could see what a huge impact it, and potential that it has. But at the same time, I know that there are discussions you know, in Islamic finance, so th there are those who see it as like, you know, the Islamic economy, and they really want to uh, revitalize this um, ideal economic system. But then there are those who are much more skeptical, and they're like, well, you know, the reason why all the big corporate banks and, you know, are, are on this bandwagon is because they're just trying to manipulate it and turn it into Islamic yeah. by name, but yeah. capitalists by nature. So <laughs> what, what do you say to people, first of all, when you want to introduce them to Islamic finance? And secondly, Muslims, when they're skeptical of it? Right. So I guess if we start at Islamic finance from what it should be, and then, we mm. go, then I think that's a good place to start. So Islamic finance, in terms of its original principles and what it calls to, is absolute economic justice. And it, it, it helps foster and create uh, an environment for economic prosperity in, an, uh, I guess, in a fair way. This is really important. The principles that we have mm. gave us, uh, um, I remember I gave a speech once on can non-Muslims benefit from Islamic finance and um Alhamdulillah, I got a standing ovation from the majority of the non-Muslim non crowd. Because when you explain the principles, forget the terms, when you explain the principles, yeah. they all get it. When mm. you talk about there has to be real economic activity, 
You're not selling nothing yes. for something. You're, yeah. you're, you have risk and reward is shared. Okay, this is like, you know, irrespective of your economic background, you're both treated fairly in a transaction based on what you put into that transaction. Not like today, where if you're a huge super corporate conglomerate and there's an individual person on the other side, they get dwarfed, the individual, that they, their rights don't matter, the big company matters. And you can see this when companies go bankrupt, who are the first people to get their money back? It's the large companies, why not the individuals? And then obviously all of the the, the net negative things in society, the social ills that you speak about, not investing in pornography, in gambling, uh, in alcohol, you know, there's got to be some real trade, something real of, of real value that's being exchanged in this. Um, and then, you know, if you look at it, all of these principles, actually, alhamdulillah, they, they get it, they understand. But then mm -hmm. also the approach, uh, Islam's approach to money isn't that you, you know, value is so much more than just money. And it's getting people to understand this. When we look, we think, okay, value in a capitalist system is that you've got to make more money than you made the previous year. And if you don't make more money than you made the previous year, then the company hasn't done well. But maybe you employed 200 more people. Maybe you employed yeah. 500 more people. And that's 500 more families that are now being fed because of you. But we don't look at those metrics. We just look at bottom line return. So, yes, yes. So this is what we need to do is have this discussion around value. So Islamic finance actually calls to actually moving away from any type of debt-based investment, okay? So where one party, their, all of their rights are protected, their risk is protected, they're guaranteed a return and they get an increase on it. This is fundamentally what riba is. Mm. This is fundamentally what riba is. Rather it's saying, listen, if you're going to give money to someone, you lend it at no profit, and this is hugely rewarding Islamically. You gift it, it's charitable, or you invest it. Risk and reward is shared. The reason that the high street is it, I know a lot of people look at the high street and they say the high street's dead, loads of shops have closed. That's because people aren't going out shopping anymore. That's part of the reason. But actually, another one of the most significant reasons is that a lot of these companies were bought out, they were heavily leveraged. All of these companies, they took all of their money out of these companies that lent them money. And so these companies are left with debt. When they invest, they're not investing their own money. It's based on debt. And so these companies can't service this, their debt. From a debt perspective, there's this. The other element of debt is that what it does, it forces companies to become overproductive. And this has a complete adverse impact on the environment. People don't think about it. Right. Like and because people are very conscious right now about climate change and the environment, Absolutely. Sometimes, sometimes the link isn't made that this system, the the kind of capitalist desire to constantly overproduce, exactly, um, and use the world's resources no matter what uh, yeah. the cost is, exactly. is what's causing the harm. Yeah, completely. The, the net present value versus a future discounted value or something. So, if you have farmland that, if you were to do it in a sustainable way, it will give you crop until the eternity inshallah but no if you do the intensive farming on it very quickly mm -hmm. after 10 years it can't produce any more crop but that's the attitude that people have in finance so islamic finance when you apply the principles it always looks at the collective good alhamdulillah islam is so balanced like that between communism socialism capitalism islam sits really in the middle it says that you can make yes. money there's no barriers you to you making money actually mm. islam doesn't seek to get involved in the marketplace like that like people are yeah. happy unless it's the, the, there's a need a communal need but islam allows you to kind of the area of muamalat make money how you want however you shouldn't transgress anyone's rights 
those kind of obvious and those which aren't obvious in, in making that money. Right. And that's, and that's a really simple thing, actually, but it's really profound, you know, that definitely make money, but look at the rights of those uh, that you're going to transgress in pursuing making that money. And then on top of that, that's just the first element. The second element is if you make that money, what do you then do with it? You're mm. strong in charity of charity. And most people know that the longest ayah in the Quran uh, is to do with riba. The longest ayah in the Quran is to do with riba. But actually, when you look at Surah Baqarah, the verses preceding the verses of riba and the prohibition of riba, there's about 20 odd verses that all talk about your relationship with wealth and about giving charity. and about how, So it's like, how do you approach the topic that it doesn't right. become the sole goal? That, okay, look, you know, understand wealth has a part to play, but giving wealth away, etc. So you're kind of coming into it that, okay, we're going to make money, but actually this thing shouldn't consume me. And if I do make money, yeah. me, then look, these are the rules, but don't get attached yeah. to it. Give it away. And, and, and also, I guess, so So I guess what you're pointing to is that the entire philosophy, Islamic philosophy behind wealth. And I think that's really in, in and of itself game changing, right? The idea that Allah, the creator, actually owns all wealth, right? Like all wealth has been given by him. And yeah. then we are like caretakers almost, right? We're, we we are stewards. Steward. And so we're going to be answerable for that wealth. Uh, so I think right from the beginning, if you have that mindset, it, it changes the way you, you, Completely. you approach money, right? And also I think another thing that you've uh, reminded me of is that I think most people in society are kept financially illiterate. Like, yeah. just just think about school. Like, we didn't learn anything. No. Unless you took economics, and that's probably A-level, right? You didn't learn anything about what what actually is a bank. You know, like, what actually is an account, a bank account? What actually that's happens? What, what are the inner workings of that? All, the first you probably hear about money is when you're 18 and you get like a credit card in the post, right? Like some company has figured out that you're 18, yeah. sends you a credit card in the post, encouraging you basically to get into debt, right? And yeah. that is su such an irresponsible way uh, to, or maybe it's deliberate, you know? Yeah. Maybe it's no, deliberate, really. a deliberate way to get people to just sleepwalk into debt and never question the system. Like there's mm -hmm. no other way that people have ever been told that, they could be the economy could be it's financial slavery sister like mm. i don't know, like it's, it's financial slavery you get caught up in a system and you know you see it now you want to buy something that maybe you can afford it but it still tells you split the payments buy now pay later like the throwing debt at you the, 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 the head of barclay card famously said that he would never give his children a credit card is kind of rat in a moment, those people who know Ratner when he spoke about his jewellery. But the head of Barclay Card goes, he would never give his children a credit card. Um, and, and this is the biggest thing. You see, when you talk about financial literacy, the people who have wealth, they understand certain things. And one of the most important things is taxes and credit. You know, mm. they understand taxes and credit. You know, and, and most of us don't. Sometimes we think, oh, they're giving us money. It's fine. We don't realize that the cost, the true cost of that money. Um, and that's the debt-based system. Um, but I want to come back slightly, actually, to the previous question you asked about Islamic finance. So I was yeah. saying about, we spoke about the philosophy of money. Yeah. The challenge was, you see, um, I, I guess I'm part of, generally in finance, they're, they're going through a period of disruption. So you see the rise of fintechs and so on. These are disruptors in the, in the conventional financial 
services uh, kind of space. And I think within Islamic finance, there's been a lot of talk and you spoke about two camps. And I think that actually people are at a space now where they're saying that actually Islamic finance needs a rebalancing. Mm. <laughs> and why? Because um, Islamic finance, actually, the products that we had mimicked conventional products. Right. And this was a big that's, issue. That's one of the criticisms, right? It mimicked conventional finance. And so something that shouldn't be a debt, um, well, something that they say isn't a debt, ends up operating entirely like a debt. Yeah. And mm. this, is, this, is, this is financial engineering to make it um, halal by the way it's structured, but actually it operates, functions, tastes, feels, smells exactly like a normal product. Now, for me, something that's quite interesting is that, you know, everyone talks about Bitcoin. I'm sure you've spoken, must have spoken about Bitcoin as well and the rise of Bitcoin and why. Yeah. Why Bitcoin? I haven't spoken about it. I've just discovered it recently and I must say it's quite confusing. Yeah. But yeah. if we take it back, rather than looking at the price hikes, what was it about Bitcoin that captured everyone's imagination? It was the fact that it was an opposition to conventional banking. The conventional system, yeah. finance. Mm. Now, Bitcoin came out of nowhere where we don't know actually who came up with it. And the world has been captured by, oh, my God, there's another, uh, there's an alternative to the conventional financial system. Where were the people involved in Islamic finance when the financial crisis happened to say, actually, the alternative to the oppression within the conventional financial system is Islamic finance? Mm. When the financial crisis happened, why did we not come forward? Why did the scholars not come forward? And you know why? It's because why? they couldn't stand up and say, actually, our financial system is different because it wasn't. Oh. It wasn't different, and they knew it. I've it wasn't in, in substance. It wasn't. Mm. I've sat in meetings. Uh, I, I was an auditor, shard of glass, you know, in London Bridge, tallest, uh, mm. tallest building in Western Europe. Everyone loves yep. it. That was actually funded using Islamic finance, okay? Um, right? Parent finance, the, the parent company was Islamic finance. All of the subsidiaries, the companies underneath that actually built it, conventional finance. We were supposed to audit it. I was one of the auditors on there. I was sat there and I go, okay, I'm going to audit the files. And I go, oh, it's supposed to be funded using uh, Sharia compliant finance. And my manager, non-Muslim, goes, yes, uh, make sure anywhere where it says interest, you change it to profit. Anywhere okay. in the contract where it says interest, just make sure it's, it's, it cross it out and change it to profit. This is one example. There's so many, you speak to people in the industry and they will tell you how it's just a fast. People are involved behind the scenes. They will tell you that, okay, that you know, contracts, they're hidden from the scholars, they'll wait till scholars go out the room, they will change things, they play about with it. And the thing is that people on the ground, they can't honestly say that, that the product that comes to them feels any different. And then it's the fault of the community mm -hmm. as well, because they ask for products that are exactly like a conventional product. But this is the problem. When the financial crisis happened, this was our opportunity to say Islam has a better way of doing things. Islam has a solution to this. The debt where, you know, you privatize profits and socialize losses. This is what's happened. Mm. Big banks spent yes. money that they shouldn't have. They've spent people's money and now they're bailed out. If the government wanted to do something, why didn't they give money to everyone to pay off their mortgages and debts? You'd have had more money in society flowing. People would have had the money. The banks would have been paid off. 
But the government is to think about it like that. And our guys failed in bringing it to the fore that Islam was the solution to this. And, and this so is so what, what do you think is the reason for for that? Is it is it also that we lack a lack imagination? Like we don't have enough brains working on this to find genuine solutions? Is it because we acquiesce too easily to pressures and, and we just you know people in Islamic finance mm. just believe there isn't really a, a more radical way it just we just have to find a way to halal halalify you know conventional mm. products what what I, would you say is like the core reason why we can't make or we haven't up to now substantially made Islamic finance really different uh, I don't think that we don't have talent. I think we definitely have talent, alhamdulillah. We're awash with talent. Alhamdulillah, I've met some of the greatest minds who are Muslims working in the city and other fields. Uh, it's the application, I think, number one, of actually, do we want to solve this problem? You know, mm -hmm. do we want to solve this problem, number one? Number two, I think that some responsibility has to be taken um, by the people who signed off on some of these products, to be honest, because it's, okay, we've made them halal now, so why do we need to pursue an alternative? Mm. You know, so uh, well, you I, have, I have sometimes, I, I've talked to scholars like that, you know, because I've noticed that there are scholars who you could say are more, um, I don't, I don't want to use the word stricter, but, yeah. you know, they, they have a more con conservative approach, you could say, right, to... Yeah. Uh, Islamic finance and so they will really not sign off on probably most of the stuff that's out there today right yeah. but then you have those who are on the boards you know literally yeah. of the banks and you know yeah. they they do sign off so I, I actually took the time to talk to some of those to see their thinking right and what I found is that they they feel that they're being really pragmatic and they do actually genuinely believe that maybe because they look at the lenient opinions, maybe, you know, across Madahib, et cetera, yeah. um, they do genuinely believe they're doing a service to the Muslim Ummah because they're helping Muslims to find real solutions to their, to their problems. And they don't feel that we need to be that strict if you like you know um in the way that the more conservative scholars are like what would you say to that uh i would say with all due respect i really do value and understand empathize with their position of um making things easier uh for people but i think you need to understand that in a context from a, of a, of a dunya and a hereafter perspective uh where people are really they understand that you're giving them an allowance as opposed to making something permissible in and of itself. And I'll just clarify that. Mm. Every single scholar without fail, those within finance who are full-time within finance and those who aren't in finance but still agree with the structures, when I ask them the question, do you think this Islamic mortgage, for example, is permissible in and of itself, that it would be permissible in any time, in any space, in any condition, they say, no, of course not. Really? Yeah. It's because of the context in which we're operating, the situation, the right. alternative isn't there. Da, 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 da. Why does that not come out? 
Mm. If people understood that, that there's still an allowance being made, then I think they would behave differently. But it's not coming. It's just, oh, this is halal. It's like the, like the, the, the fatwa for you can um, uh, use a mortgage to buy the house that you live one in. House, yeah. One yeah. house. And most people know that. They say, oh, as long as it's your residential. You ask them a little bit further about that. What does that mean? Uh, no, no, it's like, you know, it's halal for you to buy a house that you're going to live in. What about the conditions? They won't mm. know any of the conditions. They won't know that you've got to go yeah. through X, Y, and Z before you get that, before you establish it. And then if you can buy a house, do you buy the biggest house on the road? No, you buy the minimum that's required to fulfill the need of you having a roof over your head. But that's lost. The same with insurance. Yeah. It's become so prevalent that, yeah, yeah, you can buy, you know, car insurance because it's law of the land and so on and so forth. They'll, they'll just get the the sound bites, the headlines, and they think it's okay. And they don't realize actually you're supposed to still interact with it in a way that you detest it. And that level of detestation isn't yeah. there. It, well, it's hard to detest something when, you know, it's your house, basically. You know, you, you, you're no, actually, you're gaining something that you love from it, right? Yeah. Um, but that mechanism that you were forced to do that. Yeah. That, oh. Well, I think it's because people don't even really know the fatwa, you know. They don't, no, they don't. They don't realize that the entire premise of it was based on considering owning a house to be a darura, right, yeah, or a haja. Yeah. A haja, yeah, yeah. Which is also a question questionable, right? The very premise yeah. is like owning. A lot of European countries, people don't own their properties. Yeah. There's something about Britain, I think. Um, and this is the point you see. This mm. is the point. What rather than us completely going down the oh, how do we mimic life? and make these things halal, like, why don't we look at alternatives? Germany, mm. they use the, the renting. Why is there not a lobby group to try and say, actually, we need to move away from home ownership to having more safer, secure rents? Thinking mm. outside of the box. Um, th th there's a number of housing uh, kind of products I've seen which are truly halal, truly halal mm. in, in the sense of the way that they are structured, that, were, that came about by non-Muslims who were looking at a problem yeah. That, yeah, but non-Muslims, they devised mm -hmm. it because they didn't want people to get into debt to help people from a social uh, housing perspective, right, uh, who, who were lower down the, the socioeconomic ladder. Non-Muslims, because they started with what's the problem, how do we solve it? If you look at what debt's done, if you look at the house prices, house mm -hmm. prices have risen completely in line with uh, money circulation, money circulation that's been driven by credit, Yeah. The way Islamic mortgages work, it completely mimics all economic, all economic outputs of a mortgage. And that's a problem because you're part of the problem then. You're part of the, the reason why house prices are rising so high. You know, and, and this is what I'm saying. If you're going to give a fatwa like that, make sure everyone understands the stipulations and all of the caveats around it. And the problem is, you see, once they've done that, people have stopped trying to innovate or come up with uh, real right. Because the demand isn't there anymore, right? Like, oh, at yeah. least it's diminished. Exactly. But do you think? Do you think there are moves now? You're saying that some non-Muslims have come up with halal solutions. Do you think that now? You know, you could argue that maybe the a few years back it was still early years, so maybe people were a little bit more kind of, you know, we can't really uh, we can't really move this in the direction that we really want it to go in. But now. Like you said, there is more talent. There's more 
savvy in the Muslim community as well, right? Like even like yeah. there are experts who are ulama, but also, you know, experts in investment and in, in all, all kinds of fields in law. So yeah. do you think now, like in the next decade, say, we're going to see uh, a, a, like a burst of truly halal, truly authentic products from Muslims? Um, I wish I could say yes. I wish mm. I could say yes. What, what makes um, you not be able to say yes? Because ultimately the layer of, of wealth and making money is such a strong one. It's such yeah. a strong one. And even uh, coming up with products. So you say something like um, microfinancing. Yeah. So this is microfinancing. Um, have you heard of Grameen Bank? Yeah. Right, Grameen Bank. Yeah. So Could you tell uh, people a little bit about it so that people who don't yeah, have any kind of finance so, so background? Grameen Bank. Yeah. It was um, uh, Dr. Muhammad Yunus. Um, he set up, uh, he, he looked in Bangladesh and said that the poor people there, they needed, uh, they didn't have access to credit. And so by giving them loans, they can become self-sufficient. And he got mm. like a Nobel Prize for this. It was amazing. Oh, you know, he's really helped. Microfinancing uh, that they done, they were charging 30%, 30% pro uh, profit. Like if you think about your normal rate of, of, of lending here, maybe 5%, 6%, 7%. They were charging 30% to the poorest in society to lend them money. Right. And so, but everyone, he was applauded the world over. He got a Nobel Prize and microfinancing mm. was seen. Oh, this is, we're helping developing communities. We're, you know, doing X, Y, and Z by microfinancing. Uh, I know a friend of mine, he used to work for a hedge fund and he goes that, you know, 40% of their profit came from microfinancing because they could charge the highest rates. The highest rates to who? The developing world. You see, and so my worry is now um, with 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 the kind of the, the 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 fintech, the financial technology revolution. People are it's a lot easier. There's lower barriers to entry to setting up companies, but it also exposes people to more opportunities where people who aren't qualified, who don't have the expertise in advising or setting up companies, uh, now taking money. The democratization of of, of flow of wealth ha has this as uh, as as an impact. You know, so now people are coming into it who, and their intention, I know for, when I've spoken to people, their intention isn't to build something to last. They're not looking at the value created in society. They're looking at, and they've said they're the quickest I can exit out of creating a company. So they're just looking to get a value of their company and get out of it. And it's happened. It's happened in the Islamic finance space, the Islamic fintech space, which is why I worry, which is why you still need to go back to basic principles and all of these things about okay why are you doing what you're doing are you trying to solve a problem or are you thinking about how do i islamify a solution because there's a difference mm. one thing is where you start from inception and you build up what is the problem that you're trying to solve and how are you going to solve it or the other is oh that's doing really well how do we make a muslim version of it and, and this is a problem because today the narrative constantly everywhere you look is how do you become richer? How do you like make money, like not doing anything, become a you know side time, mm. like you know hustler, and all of these types of things? Is just throwing the focus is on wealth, 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 making wealth, making wealth, you know. And we try. Can I ask you something? What is yeah. wrong with 
making a Muslim version of it. Like, I'm just like, honestly asking because <clears throat> when I was think when I was looking back at the Prophet approach to the marketplace, right? Yeah. Um, there were lots of different types of transactions that were taking place, right, in the Medina marketplace, and you can actually for our listeners and viewers like you could go in medina you can actually see the place where the prophet sallallahu marketplace was it's still there right yeah. um there were lots of transactions going on he didn't completely wipe out or stop all types of transactions there were yeah there were some transactions he told people to adjust there were some that he removed so it, it wasn't like what I'm trying to say is he, he didn't necessarily create a completely new completely new transactions right no. so what's wrong with if say non-muslims or i don't know banks have come up with a an idea um but it's not islamic there, there are problematic elements what's wrong with adjusting it a little bit to islam islamify it Islamify it. From what I mean, look, the, the Prophet, when he went into the marketplace, he stopped the transactions which were, I guess, uh, um, going to have a negative impact or for or were prohibited. The, the ones that had a lot of uh, yeah. high level of uh, what's what's the word again? Yeah. Uh, is, uh, uncertainty. Yeah, uncertainty. uncertainty and, yeah. yeah, inherent mm. risk in that sense. Um, yeah. But the underlying products were, were were normal products. I'm talking about coming from a mindset of we're going to target the Muslims with this product, but we don't have a real interest in the product. We, we, we you know, we haven't done the, the heavy lifting in terms of the creativity. Does the market need the product? Do Muslims need this product? I'll give you one small example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, myself um, and uh, a scholar were on a call with somebody who works in the insurance industry. Malah preserve the scholar. We were in this call on somebody who works in the insurance industry, and he wanted to talk to us about having Islamic products. Okay, and he goes, "Oh, he wants to create a a, a, a burial or a funeral insurance product for Muslims." Okay, okay. good, doesn't it? So like to be product. able to pay for burials and funerals, yeah. burial and everything is expensive mm. and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. Sounds like a good idea. Non-Muslims have it. Why can't Muslims have it? Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. And his was, oh, he's seen it, it's really popular. Let's push out to Muslims, you know? And and, and this is why I kind of despair sometimes about the, 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 the scholars who just look at things from, or who are just involved in Islamic finance. Because when I've had similar discussions with other scholars uh, to do with business, they straight away jump into, okay, how do we make it halal? This scholar, Allah preserve him, he took a step back and he goes, why do you want to do that? And he goes, oh, you know what Muslims should have it, everyone else has it. He goes, but you know that this is a communal obligation on burying and having the janazah of a Muslim. Mm. And Allah wanted it to be a communal obligation. And if we sign off this product, will we be removing that communal obligation and going away from what Allah wants from us? Now I know it's a yeah, 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 yeah. I get that. That's that's a completely different because because you can see. Even just with the life insurance and that kind of insurance with with the wider non-Muslim community, there's this there are fear tactics, right, that are used yeah. to literally sell these products. And as Muslims, it's if we have products like that, it's gonna completely change our psychology. Of yeah. Mm. Of course. Like, so you, I see you, what you mean. I see what you yeah. mean about 
How Kendall. just Islamifying it before we do that, ask the question, should we even do this? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Is this product needed for the Muslims? Does it benefit the Muslims? Care homes. This is a big discussion at the moment. Yeah. Mm. People are now talking about Muslim care homes. And it's such a difficult discussion to be had. And the scholars do need to discuss it. But even saying it, you you know, I remember when I first heard this around 15 years ago, some people talking about setting up Muslim care homes. And at that time, I, I, I blanketly said, no, what are you doing? Islam, like, you know, we should be encouraging people to look after their parents. And I know there's a, there's a lot more nuance to this the discussion. Yeah. But some people just, oh, yeah, we can make money. We can look after Muslims in an Islamic environment. Makes sense. You know, but then actually, what are you doing to the family unit? Like, you're not mm. taking back and looking at the impact and this is my biggest criticism of a lot of the scholars involved in islamic finance because they just go into the transactions and they're the ones who sign off on it and many of them serving on 50 60 boards i don't know how they can even have due diligence with the work that they do but take the step back tell the people why are you doing this do you need to do this what is going to be the output mm. of that product look at the bigger picture exactly. the longer term impact yeah Exactly. That's what's mm. required. And this is why there's nothing wrong with coming up product in a halal version or a Muslim version of something. But why? What was your route to, to getting there? Yeah. And, and what, what how, and, and will it be counterproductive? Yeah, exactly. The, okay. Exactly. So what makes Wahid different? Okay. That's my next topic. Different? Yeah. Um, so what makes Wahid different? What, is makes Wahid, what is Wahid, first of all? Like people first might not all, even. Okay, Wahid, uh, Wahid is at its most basic. It's a an uh, uh, investment platform that allows the average person to be able to invest in halal, uh, in different types of halal asset classes. Asset classes are different types of investments. So we have we were set up in the U.S. around five years ago. We have uh, what's called an ETF, a fund that's listed in American Nasdaq. Uh, we're in the U.K. We're in Malaysia. Um, we're going to Nigeria, South Africa, a number of different countries anyway. So, so uh, we're, we're global, alhamdulillah, in terms of what we do. What we've done is we've created an app that allows the average person to invest in halal investments at its most basic. You choose your risk appetite and then you can invest. And we invest in funds, so stocks and shares, which are screened to make sure that they're halal. So we look at what, what business they're in, how much debt do they have, what level of impermissible activities do they have? Um, you can also invest in gold uh, or you can invest in what's called a sukuk, which is like an, uh, an asset-backed bond, which is low risk. So based on your risk appetite, you invest and then you just get a return. And you can do it all through the app. You can see how your investment is doing. You can create separate pots where you can say maybe you're saving for or investing for hajj or a deposit for a house uh, or even for your children's education. And you put it in there and you just choose and you let it grow. What's really good, alhamdulillah, is that um, it's tax efficient. Uh, we, you can create an ISA. Most people won't know what an ISA is, and this is why we need to do the financial literacy. It allows you to uh, save or invest £20,000 a year tax-free, that the benefit of it is tax-free. Also pensions, and this is a huge topic of discussion, um, uh, the pension issue. But you can also invest in halal pensions uh, via SIP or a workplace pension. So... It's just the app that allows you to invest at its most basic, really simple, um, and you can see how it's going. And you can, uh, minimum investment is 50 pounds, and you can take the money out when you need to. But we would say, look, um, let it grow, stay in there. 
Now, for me, there's one thing which is about the investment side, okay? And what Wahid does is, alhamdulillah, why Wahid is different is that you're investing in uh, real, uh, real economic activity. And there's no debt. We don't touch debt. We're not doing any structured products. We're not getting, you know, um, kind of, you know, exotic sounding Islamic products and putting them there where people don't understand what they're doing. We're keeping it really simple, just giving access to people to invest their money. And there's no, there's no, like, we're not saying you've got a minimum of £5,000 or £20,000. You know, we're saying for the average person, put your money aside, inshallah, and let it grow. And you can see it grow like that, inshallah. Obviously, there's, it's an investment, so it could go up or down. But you choose your risk appetite and you leave it in there. Now, for me, this is a big thing, actually. One thing is that the investment side, but there's a principle uh, in, in, in the Sharia that the prevention of harm takes precedence over any perceived benefit. The prevention of harm takes precedence over any perceived benefit. Now, when you put your money in a halal investment, what you're doing is taking it out, if you're taking it out from your bank, out of the conventional system. And, and mm. this point that you made earlier is so important that people don't know how banks work. When you leave your money in a bank, right. and even if you think, oh, I don't want any interest on it, banks use your money to lend to other people. And they will yeah. use your money to make interest. Yeah. You know, that's how it's that's how the system works. Whether you, they give it to you or not. Exactly. They, they still get the interest. Yeah. So you leaving money in there, you're effectively lending the money for them to go and do increase the oppression. So taking mm -hmm. money out of such a system and putting investment. Not just with Wahid, you know, I'm saying this, put your money in halal investments, wherever they are, check your risk appetite, look at all of these things, but think of the reward, even just for taking it out of the banking system, taking it out of the banking system. From a practical perspective, obviously you want to leave some money. And you know, actually, the super wealthy, when you speak to them, mm -hmm. they really keep their money in banks. You speak to them, they, they really... They keep it tied up in something. They have it working for them. Working for them, yeah. They mm. have it working for them. So we've mm. brought that concept and just made it easier for everyone to do. And it's important for people to understand, look, we're fully regulated. We've, we've gone through the pain of every country, every jurisdiction we're in to be fully regulated, whether it's in the US, the SEC, uh, OFAC, et cetera, and the UK, the FCA, the main one is the Financial Conduct Authority. And you have to, they, you get um, checks by them. You have to do lots of reporting to them. Went through the pain of doing that because it's important that, you know, when we're dealing with people's money, it's an amount at the end of the day. So we're fully like regulated. We have a triple lock approach to it being Sharia compliant as well. Alhamdulillah, so people are worried from that point of view. The areas where there may be some questions is, okay, well, how did you choose your stocks and shares? So our, mm. our, our most basic, we apply a level from IOFI, which is the International Accounting yes. uh, Standards for Islamic Finance. And, and they've given yeah. a number of principles. We apply them. And then on top of that, we have a, a, a Sharia Review Bureau that we then go to, okay, to check with them and ask them. And then thirdly, alhamdulillah, there's a number of us who are obviously involved in Islamic finance. And for our markets, we understand the products and etc. So, So in the UK, if I'm not comfortable with something, I will then go and speak to the scholars I, I know and I'm familiar with and ask them, and or I will challenge something, you know. And it's important people understand mm. that, that we constantly challenge it. 
I'll give you one small example, actually, of one of this. We were mm -hmm. going to run a competition where if uh, people uh, put money uh, into a wide open a wide account, they could win. They could have the chance of winning uh, a prize, uh, a monetary prize. And this had been signed off previously, right? Maybe slight variation right. to it. And everyone was really excited about this, that, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this. And I came in the office. I said, no, we're not doing it. And they go, why? I go, for me, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's like uh, gambling. They go, how? I go, because it's like buying a lottery ticket with the chance of winning money at the end of it. And then they go, oh, okay, we understand. You know, and that's, that's why it's important that you have people, alhamdulillah, who also understand on a practical level. Because sometimes it can get quite uh, disconnected from when the original fatwa is given down to how right. it's practiced and the behaviors that it has. But alhamdulillah, this is, this is a good thing. You know, and I guess this is why um, why it is different in that sense that we're not looking to, to go into any type of credit or lending. We're just trying to help Muslims build their own wealth. It's their money. It's not ours. It's their money and how they can build it. We're servicing, I think, a quarter of a million people globally now, alhamdulillah. You know, and that's not easy. Yeah, the world's largest growing Islamic fintech. Uh, it's slow and steady, alhamdulillah. I think what, what I found good about, well, first of all, my, my husband, <clears throat> whenever I ask him about an investment or some product, he always says, you know, ask Umar, because <laughs> because he, he knows that you are quite, you are scrupulous at the end of the day, you know, and, and like you said, not, not everyone has that kind of scrupulousness yeah. or maybe sometimes they don't have the knowledge or whatever, right? So I, I do really appreciate that, you know, uh, right. even though I asked you how is Wahid different, <laughs> uh, you know. Um, but what I liked about Wahid was <clears throat> I found it really accessible for somebody yeah. who doesn't really know anything about, you know, stocks yeah. and shares and I know about it theoretically, but I mean, I've never, I never had experience of investing before Wahid. Yeah. Uh, I found it very accessible. Good. So, so what would you say to like, <clears throat> I don't know, a sister out there or even a brother who may be, they don't, you know, they, they don't have experience with saving and they never really, I, I think it's also a psychological thing, isn't it? Like you never saw yourself as somebody I'm not an investor. an investor. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, there is a psychological shift that needs to take place. Yeah. But say they're ready now. They've got some money. Maybe sister has her dowry uh, or, you know, I'm being quite stereotypical here, but or, <laughs> I don't know. She has yeah, maybe uh, these days she might have a job. <laughs> she might have a job, you know, yeah. uh, and or a brother. You know, they don't really know where to start. Would something like this be a good place to start? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's certain things I would say when you're looking at investments. Yeah. First of all, mm. first and foremost, um, is it halal? For me, the first criteria is it halal? Yeah. So you comply that. So let's just say that's done. Then you look at what uh, protection do you have? What kind of legal? Are they organized? Are they, is everything documented? Are they contracts, etc.? General, these are general advice around investments like look at it who who are you dealing with are they you know are they trustworthy is there a sense of have they got experience in the business that they're doing and so on and so forth mm. so this is like 
you know, you get lots of people who give opportunities for investing, but you don't know where they've yes. come from, what they've done. So look, who are the people behind it? What they're doing? What the mechanisms they have for taking the investment? Thirdly, can, I, can, I, can I just yeah. share a little story about that? You're so, see, so yeah, I'm a traditional Muslim woman, and uh, I have with my dowry, I invested yeah. about half of it into a, an up-and-coming company. Okay, yeah, um, that sounded really good okay yeah. uh, some brothers basically okay and um it was it was actually revolutionary technology at the time it was a finger pit like you know like uh finger recognition finger uh yeah biometric fingerprint yeah. yes exactly and that wasn't widespread at all at the time right it was like starting yeah. out and they were one of the pioneers i think and so sounds really good right like yeah 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 and so i just kind of signed signed away half my dowry to that and um that's without doing any research yeah <laughs> i sound really stupid now but but that's what that's that's the sort of thing that and by the way it completely you know that company doesn't exist anymore right let's wow. just put it that way but yeah. it was a learning curve for me you know because yeah. then i was like wait a minute i didn't do the due diligence i didn't even really scrutinize or and you know when you watch programs like dragon's den right and you see and you see the way yeah. real investors they don't just yeah. hand over their money you know they literally want to see the finances they want to see what's going on you know the, yeah. the and, and they want to see whether you're really going to make this work before they even hand over a penny well i'm just i just remember that experience that was like my first foray into any type of investing in it uh, ended badly but at the same time it taught me a lot you know yeah I can um, imagine and I think people are scared of stuff like that you know yeah <laughs> like but that's what I'm saying look you you should definitely do your due diligence look at who, mm. who's behind the company you can look at some things that like going to company's house what company who who are the directors does is it consistent with what you you've said if they've been running for a while what are their accounts etc but generally look who are behind the company? And so, so things like being regulated make a difference like that. And then mm. thirdly, what, what is the recourse for you getting your money back? This right. is important. Yes. How do you get your money out? What is the form of your money going to come back as? And so this is often that happens is that people say, oh, this brother's opened a restaurant, uh, got investment, we're going to get really good returns. Okay, that's great. How would you get your money back out if you need to? uh yeah. we can sell it to someone you else have to have an exit plan as well as a yeah exactly but there isn't yeah. a secondary market for that type of investment um mm. are you willing to lose entirely what you've invested this is a big one mm. are you yeah, willing sometimes to you don't think of that no no because that, that at the beginning everyone is excited and it sounds really good and and the statement of Omar Khattab is so important that because you know uh never make a decision when angry and never make a promise when happy you know, yeah, emotional, you can, in other words, yeah, Any exactly. Kind of emotion shouldn't color your <laughs> so you start getting into the idea, really. Mm -hmm. And I, I tell you something else, uh, something I've kind of learned over the years, um, Fatima, is that ideas there's plenty of ideas out there, there's there, there's no shortage of ideas. The issues is with execution and so many ideas fall short because they never have the right people to execute them. You know, and this is why it's always so important. And you'll look at when the big investors, the whales, when you hear about people like Warren Buffett, he goes, he always looks at 
who the board is and who senior man actually more than the board senior management is hmm. why they say is because you've got to look at who are the people if somebody wants to go into i don't know a technology company and the only job they've done today is that they were you know i don't know a teacher or, or something else where they were they yes. something not to do with technology for example they're just trying to change change industry yeah. or yeah yeah so the idea may yeah. be great but I, mm. Are you going to be able to execute? Because it's not easy. It's, 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 it's Do they have the background? Yeah. yeah, the deliverability. Exactly. It's yeah. true. All of those things, I think you... The thing is, a lot of the books nowadays about, you know, finances, even books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and, you know, yeah. those kind of popular yeah, yeah, yeah. Tony Robbins books about money. And, like, you pick them up, and in a few pages, you just realise how irrelevant they're going to be to you because they talk about compound interest and you know that's what they're yeah, all about yeah, yeah. right like so i think there's just such a dearth of literature out there there's nothing there for muslims to kind of say look i actually no i do want to get financially savvy i do want to take my finances seriously as soon as you go into like the mainstream world of advice if you like or or self development in that in that field it just becomes so irrelevant so quickly that yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think you should write a book, brother. <laughs> All right. No, I'm not joking. Like, I've been for, for, I mean, like a popular book, you know, not not yeah. one of these very kind of theoretical Islamic finance books, but literally really for the really average person, yeah. um, like, where do you start? What do these terms mean? Because that that's another thing, isn't it? Like, what, yeah, yeah, definitely. What does equity mean? What is what is a share anyway? What is stock? Yeah. What is that's it. Like, All of that. And then just giving people like a plan. Cause I think a lot of the time people just want, they just want a plan. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think, you know, definitely something I've, I've wanted to do for a while, kind of like um, an everyday Islamic finance book. Like, so yeah. what I mean by that is, you know, understanding finance as a Muslim. Personally, through, yeah. Yeah, personally, on an everyday basis. So mm. things like, you know, uh, these quid co something like that you know uh where you get cash discounts are they permissible you know how right. do you navigate through that rules on credit cards like okay you never use a credit card but you know if you pay a fee for it and you get points um you know just kind of navigate warranties like you know we kind of think of these things okay when i buy something i can extended warranty is it allowed uh savings yeah. um returns when you invest the biggest thing i've noticed is when we speak to people about uh, investment, they say, okay, what's the return? And if you say you could get 7% as an example, they say, is that it? And that just shows yeah, yeah. me that they don't know anything about investments. Right. So yeah. their risk appetite. I, I, attended, I attended one of the Wahid webinars yeah. where they were, this is a few years ago, yeah. uh, where they were talking about they actually gave a good plan for people like how to invest. And one of the things they were saying is that sort of regular, regularly 100%. putting money into the account. And, and they showed on a graph, like what that would mean in a few years, you know? Yeah. And I Absolutely. think that that made a huge difference to the way I was looking at it because like on paper, a few percent does, it, it does make you think, well, you know, but yeah. when you actually think about it long-term, um, and, and somebody puts that in front of you, you know, um, yeah. I think that's when people start to understand. Uh, this is such an important point is because mm. it is about the, the small but regular, even from the hadith of the Prophet, something that's small and regular is loved by Allah. 
works the same way. Like, you know, the uh, the small amount that you put aside every month, think about it, lock it off. Like, you know, non-negotiable, yeah. you're going to put some money aside. Exactly. And just let it build up. Just forget about it and let it build up. You know, the problem So do you think that's the good way to start? Like, I'm just thinking like someone who's listening, they're like, well, I haven't saved anything, you know. Um, I, I want to start. I want to start. Would you say like, 10% or something like every time a certain amount an amount of money comes into your bank account from either a salary or a payment or whatever yep. freelance work that you've done whatever or even benefits like I'm just thinking like even yeah. people who are literally like don't have a job but they have an income of some sort if they were to say you know what 10% is untouchable or something like yeah. that and I'm going to directly put it into a fund um, every single month or whenever non-negotiable do you think that would be a good way to start 100 start somewhere start honestly 10 because yeah, one... when it's in your bank account you always find a reason to spend it yeah you know? whereas mm. if you see it and it's invested and you can see it's growing then you know psychologically you want to help it grow and you put more yes. in it you see yeah one thing is people who aren't in saving at all yeah. definitely get them to start saving like you know mm. put something aside the second set of people are those people who are just and this is actually i say the vast majority who are just leaving money in mm. the bank you know uh okay, when you yeah. consider inflation right in mm. real terms they're talking about inflation going up to five percent what that means is if you have a hundred pounds today at a rate of five percent inflation it's only worth 95 pounds right next year. so the value so, of that is that going down. Is basically going down. Mm. Yeah. And then add to that zakat that you have to pay on it. All right. It's going down further. So mm. you need to have your money in a place that beats inflation and the zakat that comes from it. And actually, the zakat ruling is different because when it's an investment, depending on uh, the type of investment, you'd pay zakat on the income that's generated and not necessarily the value of the whole investment. But that's a, like mm. a, a whole zakat discussion. But you yeah. know when it's growing and there's yeah. compound investing. You heard about compound interest. This is compound investing where that if you... Oh, yes, compound investing. Mm. Yeah, compound, compound growth. So yeah. if you get, for example, a 10% return, and mm -hmm. you think about it, the way we spoke about compound interest, how it completely drives the value down and is suppressive, then compound investing alhamdulillah works in the same way so for example if you receive 10 percent return on 100 pounds that's now 100 pound is now worth 110 pounds the next 10 percent to be applied is going to be at 110 and so over a period of time they may seem like marginal small uh increases yeah. but they'll continue to grow exponentially yeah. you know you so you can see that compounding effect uh and how that Definitely. grows and so after five or ten years you want to realize how that money's going. on top of that you'll be putting money in regularly as well, inshallah. So you can see how that grows really well together. So <laughs> on the one side, you have growth, and the other, yep. you're actually tackling real uh, deflation of right. uh, of the value of your money. The value of your cash, yeah. Yeah. And also you're investing in something beneficial, because I think that's another thing, isn't it? Like Islam doesn't want people to just have money lying around. It, yeah. The whole point of it is that it should be put back into the community some where somehow into 100%. the market yeah 100 and this this is actually quite a profound point uh mm. because you know generally when you speak to muslims oh we invest oh, we invest in properties everyone loves properties 
Yeah. Yeah. When you look at what the Sharia calls for is money flowing in society, that money mm. is circulating in society, benefiting people. When you invest in a business versus a property, yeah. you're investing in something that creates uh, wealth, creates opportunities, it provides for families, you know, that then will go Innovation. and create more Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and, and alhamdulillah, the, 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 there's a purpose and behind that. So you, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, when you invest, inshallah, in, in companies that are using the money for good and it's, you know, we're, the underlying companies we invest in, again, we're investing in companies rather than just properties, you're helping create commerce and you're helping grow the economy from that. As opposed to when you keep on investing in properties, what it does, the price of properties rise and you're making it harder and harder for people to actually purchase properties. You know, people don't think about it. I guess, um, I guess a lot of people want to have like, not put all their money into one thing, right? Exactly. Um, so one question I have is, again, like from a Muslim woman's perspective, if you have jewelry, for example, or gold, is it, I just want to ask you, like, is it good to just keep it as it is? Or is it better to sell it and then invest? That's a, that's, you know, because um, I've always wondered that. <laughs> so look, my, my gut instinct is it's better to keep it. Yeah. Apart from the yeah. sentimental value. I mean, like just the fact that, you know, gold seems to stand the test you of know, time. Value. Right? Absolutely. All times mm. and all places, gold is going to have value. Right. Um, so look, this is an important point again is around diversification. Like, you know, you don't put all your eggs in one basket, all your money in one type of investment. So you distribute it, invest in different types of uh, investment or asset classes and so on and so forth. Um, what I would say is if you have gold, personally, if you have the physical gold, hold on to it. If you have it, like for yourself, I mean, you know, I assume that it's a like it's a moderate amount, not <laughs> excessive gold. Allah bless you with that in this life and the next, inshallah. But, you know, if you have a small amount of gold, because it's, it's something of real value, it's tangible. It's an mm. asset that you have. It's It's worth something. And it's something that you can pass on, inshallah. You know, yeah. uh, you just got to be mindful of the fact that you're not hoarding it for the sake of hoarding it because the zakat that's due on it is due from yourself. Yeah. And are you able so to you pay the zakat? You still have to keep paying zakat on it, of course. Yep. Uh, but I guess the value of gold has steadily gone up, I believe. Um, yeah. And and also, in a way, again, you know, we were talking about making your money not easy to sort of squander and not easy to spend gold is like that isn't it like because it's like a, it's it's it has that uh kind of uh, sentimental value whatever and also it's a tangible metal it's there you it's not so easy for you to kind of it's very it's much more likely that your family will keep it and of course for a rainy day type thing you know like even your children the next generation etc so yeah i think you know actually what you've said is also um quite significant uh Fatima, because you know when you hold something whatever it is in your hand your like your psychological approach to it is very different and this is part of the reason i think many of us are in debt we just we spend money without mm. seeing it we it's spend just money without seeing type it a, type a few numbers into a computer or a, yeah and nowadays really? you don't even have to type anything no. in it's just 
if you have even if you've got mm -hmm. cash in your wallet and then you like you're gonna spend this there's still that thing isn't there it's your cash mm -hmm. but when you got a card you just tap it there's and a bit of pain you... involved basically exactly yes exactly you know so all of these things make a difference uh, brother Omar. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, wrap up with or to speak about? Um, I guess really, I mean, look, uh, for, for, for the audience is, yeah. um, you know, invest in understanding how kind of money works, the environment that we operate in. You know, teach your children mm. these things, inshallah, because debt it really is uh, a silent killer. And sometimes we don't yes. really appreciate debt and we don't appreciate the impact of interest on society. You know, generally we are, we're net beneficiaries living in the West, primary of, of, of the banking system. Uh, if you want to see countries that are suffering as a result of the, the financial system, you can look at any of the developing world where they have excess uh, assets and minerals, but they just can't get their head above water because of their drowning in debt. So we don't want to be people who support an oppressive system. So it's important that we try and teach our children, look, there's different resources out there available. Um, I'd also say to people, look, um, you know, people, youngsters, and if I maybe give this advice to young people who want to mm. make a quick buck, who are constantly like, you know, you know, looking for the next big thing, etc. Have some patience. Like sabr is such a beautiful quality in lots of different things, even in uh, even in chasing money and all of these types of things. Like, look at value that you're going to create. Really, Alhamdulillah, we have so much talent that's wasted, right? Chasing mm. the wrong things. Think about value creation, and I truly believe, Inshallah, that when you look at value creation, then the monetary side of it will follow. Yeah, so this is advice for youngsters around like, you know, looking at creating value. People who want to want to get into their own business or do things, look at value creation. For people who are a little bit older and think it's too late, uh, I would say, no, it's never too late. Start thinking about saving, putting money aside, etc. whatever you want to do. I mean, obviously, I, I, I work for wide, but I'm saying, you know, I can speak for them in terms of their halalness. Look at putting money aside in a halal way. It's small, steady, inshallah. And this one thing that people can't, uh, can't measure and it's not measurable in any financial statements or reports is baraka. Of course, baraka. Uh, people, mm. Yeah, people don't, people undervalue the quality of baraka. I can tell you, subhanAllah, Sister Fatima, when you mentioned that you grew up in what, Hackney was it? Yeah. From, from a council estate? Yeah. That house, alhamdulillah, had baraka. Look, mashallah, I know from your father what he's gone on to do, yourself, your children, mashallah. This is baraka. How many of us come from different uh, tough, tough backgrounds? And when we needed Allah most, Allah Barakah and what we do. So don't mm. lose sight of that. When you try and seek Allah's pleasure, then Allah will always facilitate ease for you. You know, so look at the things that bring you Barakah in life. And this means sometimes going and doing things which are completely unconnected to finance. You know, it may sound strange, but yes. looking at mending relations with their relatives, looking at time that you spend mm. with your siblings, with extended family, giving sadaqah, doing charity, like, you know, waking up in the middle of the night for prayer, all of these things. Even that, going on Umrah and Hajj, like, people don't think that that's, that is counterintuitive, isn't it? Because it's such a big, big spend, right? Yeah. But one of the 
you know, there's that book. I don't, I don't know if you've seen it. Fifteen is it? Fifteen ways to increase your increase your wealth. I think is yeah, yeah, yeah. by Sheikh Qadi. And um, one of the things in there is Hajj and Umrah, and people don't yeah. think of that. They're like, no. you know, there's people who don't go on Hajj and Umrah because they think it's so expensive. But Absolutely. actually, it's like you're saying to Allah, "I'm spending in your way. I'm I'm doing yeah. this for you." And you will always get more back. Absolutely. I can guarantee you that, you know, when you really needed it, Allah has provided for means you never expected. I've seen in my own life, you know, and I'm sure you have. And I'm sure there's people who are listening where they thought, you know, what they're going to do. And Allah provided, you know. Um, and so it's important that we always stay mindful of that. Allah is going to provide for us. You know, I, I, I say this often when I'm, I'm, I'm talking about finances that, look, Allah is our razak. Mm. Our risk was written when Allah created the pen and He created the lower mahfuz and it was written 50,000 years before creation what we were going to earn. And then when we are in the wombs of our mothers and our souls about to be breathed into us, it says how much we're going to earn, where we're going to live, where we're going to die. You know, so that risk has already been written, not guaranteed by the Bank of England, but by guaranteed by the Rabbul Alameen that all of us, what we're going to have, He's the one who's backed it he's the one who's written that check for it so why stress and worry about it whatever's going to come to you is going to come to you as certainty as the angel of death mm -hmm. but just try and do but i guess these are just means right we still have to seek the means and we of course we do our best but the actual result is in allah's, allah's hands. hands so you go out yeah. and that's why i always talk about the principles doing you you don't seek money in a way that's going to displease allah you know the rules and you don't take advantage of anyone in the pursuit of it. You go about it, but you have to go out and you work hard. And this, and you know, there's a whole other podcast on honestly on how I think we've got a generation who've completely disconnected to, to hard work and productivity. Unfortunately, I was mm -hmm. having a lot of speaking to a lot of people who are involved, even in the professional sphere as well as the dawah, where they just can't find people who are willing to work long hours or commit themselves anymore. And it's a shame. Oh, yeah. It's a shame. It's um, probably all and, and why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Because I think we're in an instant gratification society. We're in this time of where everyone thinks they know business and everything's transactional. And this is why I keep reminding people that the, 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 the transactions aren't just the transactions that you make between someone for money, but your transactions with Allah. And that's all of these other things that we're speaking about. You know, people are, are instantly, this is transaction. I'm sure when you were growing up and I'm sure my generation, like, the, when you spoke to people, they were always involved in some sort of dawah activity outside of work. They'd work, they'd go to school, college, university, even when they're working full-time, they'd be involved in some sort of dawah. They'd be doing things which doesn't make sense for someone to be doing, like, you know, like going halfway across the the city to give out leaflets or attending circles yeah, yeah. and all of these types of things. Mm. You try and tell people to do it now, they say, okay, what's, it, what's in it for me? I've seen this. Yes. What's in it for me? Definitely. I started off, mm. you know, my career in Islamic finance, I, I I never worked in Islamic finance as a job until I worked at Wahid. This is the first time in my life I've been paid for working in Islamic finance. The last 15 years, I did it entirely on top of my day job. My family, honestly, my, my, my wife and kids, they didn't see me for, for ages. Mm. But that's because you've got, you're motivated, you're you're seeing something bigger. So maybe that's what's missing, you know? They're not seeing 
they're not motivated for something bigger. Is that what it is? Yeah. Personally, I think I think it's because of the Wi-Fi, personally, you know. <laughs> like when you've got Wi-Fi in the house, it's like having, you know, it's like a luxury. Why why should, why would you you get all your hits, all your kind of dopamine, yeah, dopamine hits, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From at home, sitting at home. Yeah. So I think perhaps it's literally a case of shutting off the Wi-Fi and forcing people to go out, get involved. Something else. Do yeah. things, honestly, mm. get out, get involved in diverse dawah activities. Or dawah could be anything. Do lots of different things. Look at it. The greatest investment you can make, honestly, is in yourself. I keep on saying this to people. The greatest investment you can make Definitely. is in yourself. And you need to do that through experiences, through spending time, through sacrifice. You know, and the rest will come, inshallah. Inshallah. Jazakallah khairan, brother Umar. Uh, I think that's a good place to, to, uh, to end. That was really inspiring. I, I think your message at the end was really important as well. Like, even though we might spend time thinking about money and, you know, we don't want it to sort of consume us um, because, like you said, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in control. We seek the means and we're supposed to be clever. We're supposed to be savvy. But the results are in his hands. So I think that was a good message to end on. Jazakallah obviously for your time and obviously for the, the engaging discussion. Actually, it's nice to speak to people who actually see it from the other side and, you know, have real examples. And and you're right, you know, there are, there are genuine real challenges in life and um, we need to look at it holistically. Mm, Jazakallah Okay, and actually there's one thing I want to add, if you don't mind. Like, uh, I saw that uh, you met with Khabib. Right. Yes. Uh, I just wanted to know, like, I'm sure our listeners, I, I know Ilmfeed people are fans of Khabib, right? So yeah. um, what was that like? And uh, why did you, what did you see in him as a person who, you know, you wanted to collaborate with? Yeah. So, I mean, Habib, alhamdulillah, he's a, he's a global phenomenon. And he has, he's one of those individuals that's transcended the sport. So like Muhammad Ali is so much, was so much more than boxing. And I believe yeah. that Habib is so much more than MMA now, mashallah. For us, the, the, the key thing was the values. Like if you look at what he talks about, how he's carried himself, despite the arena that he operated in, something as violent, something as, I guess, um, yeah, as horrible as MMA with the way that they have in, in that kind of hostile, tense environment, he's managed to maintain himself and his values and carried himself throughout that and preached that inside and outside of the ring and for ourselves why see themselves like that we're operating in a financial economic system where we've got people all around us making moves calling for oppression doing things which are completely at odds with what islam calls to and we're mm. trying to maintain our values in this environment you know and for us there's a natural alignment there because it is Definitely. about despite where you are what situation you're in that you behave with the best uh, of values that you have. And for us, those principles which are non-negotiable, uh, it just tied up completely, you know, alhamdulillah. MashaAllah. And what was it, what was he like as a person? You know, MashaAllah, i got to say, uh, he's phenomenal. Um, like, you can really see this this concept of tarbiyah, yeah? Um, that when he was speaking, I saw him interacting with children. You can really see the tarbiyah, right? So first we met him... Um, he was actually talking to some children. He's asking what their name was. And uh, when they tell them their name, he goes, do you know where this name comes from? 
and he so and he referred in the Quran like one child who's called Zakaria he said do you know where this name came from this was the first name that was in the Quran and so on and so forth alhamdulillah so it was really nice seeing that he had that you know um and then mashallah it was uh one man you see he's a very humble guy you know you can see uh and he sees himself it comes across that he really he sees that he's bigger than the sport if that makes sense not in an arrogant way but he he, he seems like someone who's got a mission and he mm-hmm. said you know subhanallah he's uh uh, he, he, he's a man with a mission, you know, Hamdan, you can see that even from his, the people around him, they say now that, look, you know, Habib kind of really keeps them in check and he's kind of taking that position of his father. I, honestly, I, I say to everyone who really likes him, follows him, make dua that Allah preserves him and protects him, you know, mm-hmm. and, and his people around him because we're in need of real role models, you know. Yeah. We have enough people out there who, who are famous and do things the wrong way and for us yes. to have real genuine role models that we can kind of, you know, look up to and be, aspire to. And uh, yeah, Mick Bathroom is uh, yeah, a phenomenal guy, mashallah. Mashallah. Well, thank you, brothers and sisters, for joining me uh, today. Please do share this episode. Uh, I'm sure you'll agree that, you know, it, it's, it's, it was really eye-opening because we don't often talk about these kinds of topics. And I think it's really important that as a community, we become financially savvy, because then we can be uh, a force to be reckoned with. We can be a community that can actually, you know, take action and 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 make changes in the world. Uh, share the episode. Tell somebody new about Ilmfeed, and I'll see you next time, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Ashhadu alla ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.